Yo, I'm Shay Serrano. And I'm Brandon Jinx Jenkins. We have a new show called No Skips with Jinx and Shay. In it, we discuss the most unskippable albums in hip-hop history. New episodes drop on Thursdays, only on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. All right, it is Friday, July 1st. Welcome to the holiday weekend. Today, we're going to be talking about talent agents. And if you ever watched Entourage or Call My Agent on Netflix, you know that for most talented people, actors, directors, writers, there is a guy or girl behind the guy, behind the girl. The person who pulls the strings, who does the deals, who guides these people on their careers. And it's often a cutthroat, kill-or-be-killed business. This past week, we had some interesting news. CAA, which is now the largest talent agency in Hollywood, paid $750 million for ICM, which was a powerhouse, but had been the fourth biggest talent agency in town. And it creates what is essentially a big three environment for talent agencies. There's CAA, there's William Morris Endeavor, which is owned by the Endeavor company, Ari Emanuel's company, who is actually the basis for the Ari Gold character in Entourage. And then there's UTA, which is uh, the other big three. Then down the scale, there is a whole host of smaller agencies on the other end. Uh, there's really no middle class for agencies now. You're either at one of the big ones or you're at one of the small ones. And that's interesting because it comes at an interesting time for the talent business. There's never been more opportunities with the whole streaming revolution and peak TV. But if you're not Brad Pitt and you're not Zendaya, people are often making less money. The streaming business is under fire after a decade of a run-up. The stock of Netflix is down 70%. There's going to be a contraction in this business, most people believe. But there's also a ton of opportunities. And agencies are kind of in the middle of it all. They're like the hub of information and of talent. And if you want to put together a movie or a television show, you kind of have to go through one of these big three agencies. So it puts them in an interesting spot with a lot of power, a lot of influence, and there's a lot of anxiety right now over the future of this business. So we invited James Andrew Miller to come in and talk about this. He wrote a book on CAA called Powerhouse, and he talks to these agents all the time. I do as well, but he's in the middle of it. He's going to break down the state of the talent agency business, where it's going, what all of this contraction means, and uh, ultimately how it impacts the content that you and I watch. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with James Andrew Miller, who, in addition to being an expert on Saturday Night Live, which he has talked about previously on this podcast, he also wrote a book about the talent agency, CAA, and the history of Hollywood through the lens of that place. We had some big CAA news this past week. After nine months of waiting, finally, 
CAA was allowed by the Justice Department to purchase its rival ICM Partners, uh, the number four talent agency. CAA now goes from number two to number one. Big deal in Hollywood. Jim, what is your takeaway, your big picture takeaway of this? There's probably two headlines in my mind. One is that, you know, we can talk about the rankings or whatever, but CAA and WME are two fundamentally different companies pursuing fundamentally different strategies. And it kind of, it's not particularly dramatic in the Hollywood way that we would like it to be, but because they're doing it, doing different things, they're not, I don't see them as competitors as much anymore as they used to be, you know, five, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. Um, yeah. These are companies that hated each other that absolutely try. I mean, this is like the, you know, the cliche from entourage that at one point WME led by Ari Emanuel, they were putting up posters around century city that said, can't with the CAA letters because they were just trying to poke them in the eye. You can go all the way back to 1975 and the five people who formed CAA were fired from William Morris. And, uh, you know, when they found out that they were going to be escaping and forming an agency of their own. So I just feel like that thread is not particularly vibrant right now. But I think what is interesting is both of these companies are actually doing what the principles that these companies really want to be doing. You know, if you look at Kevin Huvane, for instance, uh, you know, one of the one of the partners uh, of CA, Kevin Huvane loves being an agent. You know, in the old days of the Golden Globe telecast, you'd see him there at the head table with Meryl Streep or whoever it was. He loves representing people. He loves, and and so does Brian. And, and you know, I think even Richard to a certain extent. Yeah, those are the three leaders of CAA. Right. Love it, Lord, and, and Huvane. And I think that CAA has been, look, th- those guys have been at the helm of CAA longer than Ovitz, Meyer, and Haber were. They've been there for a long time, and there's always rumors that this one's going to leave or that one's going to leave. They've stayed and they're doing exactly what they want to be doing. And so it makes sense for them. You know, some people may have may think that they spent $750 million and that's too much ultimately for what they got in, in ICM. And they should have just spent a lot of money trying to get the exact people that they wanted rather than buying the whole place. But that's okay. They they figured it out. And TPG, who basically control CA did a lot of rigorous analysis and they gave the okay as well. So I think that, you know, first and foremost, CA is doing more of what it wants to be doing. It want, it still believes in the representation business. It still believes in the agency business. And this is going to make them stronger. The second thing though, is that this is, it's a really, really, really hard thing that they're trying to do. You can think back to William Morris Endeavor. You can think back to some of the difficulties when Ovitz and Meyer and Haber left in 95. Transitions for agencies this big are, are huge. And I think that there's a lot of people. Remember, there are a lot of people at ICM who left CA, who were either pushed out or couldn't keep up with the culture or didn't feel like it was the right place for them. And they retreated into a, let's say in a uh, Bush 41 lexicon, a quieter, gentler, kinder uh, ICM world. And now, oh yeah, and, and, and now they're part of that CA 
you know, organization again. And that's terrifying to some. I mean, I've talked to a couple and they were like, you know, wait, I, I, I kind of left that. I, you know, and it's tough. And by the way, I think there are going to be, there's going to be more people who are going to wind up leaving either through their own volition or there's going to be another round of cuts. There's already been significant cuts. And then you have that Uber question at the top, which is, can Chris Silverman coexist with these three guys? I mean, I know head of ICM. Yeah. Yeah. I know everybody's talking about that to be the case. But look, you just ask Patrick at WME. He he was at CA. He wasn't in the small room, but he was in the next room out with his, you know, and everybody was waiting for him to get in. They never let him in. He left. He joined Ari. And uh, and, you know, we know what what happened then. It'll be very interesting to see over the next year or two whether or not these four men can really coexist. Yeah. And I think that goes for the clients as well. I mean, there is a messaging that these clients have received over the past decade from their ICM agents. You talk about clients of ICM like Ellen DeGeneres or Chris Rock or Sam Jackson or, you know, some of these television creators like Shonda Rhimes or Bill Prady, the Big Bang Theory guy, or some of these others, you know, they've been told, oh, you don't want to be at CAA. Those people are terrible. You're not a priority here. You get our full attention. You are the priority for all of us. We value you more than you would get at an agency like CAA that represents Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep and George Clooney and some of these other big stars. Now they've got to come back to them and say, oh, yeah, everything everything we uh, said about CAA, you know, uh, they're not so bad after all. Yeah, I mean, look, the word culture gets overused in Hollywood all the time. And it seems like, you know, it's the proverbial first word out of the out of the box when people talk about mergers. Um, but I do think it's a significant one. And ICM did used to talk about its value proposition to clients as a, a different culture. And, and for that matter, so did CA. But uh, they have a they have a blending challenge. And the good news is that they've been delayed so much with this approval that they've had lots and lots of time to think about how they're going to do it and to try and avoid all the proverbial potholes that lay ahead. Well, the CAA has nudged out a lot of those ICM people that they don't want. Um, A lot of those people have already left. And I had heard that everyone at CAA was sort of tacitly approving whose deals were renewed and whose deals weren't over the past nine months. So they've already kind of curated that crowd that's come over because you know it's a three thousand person plus agency now um and about 425 people are coming over from icm more than 100 are not so that's a you know about a quarter of them that are not coming over pretty significant you know the, the larger picture here that i wrote about for puck yesterday is that you know the entire entertainment industry is consolidating at this point you know we've had a period of growth Everything is consolidating around streaming and kind of the new economics of the entertainment business that are not likely going to be as robust as the cable television business was for the past 20, 30 years. So I think a lot of these agents are frankly scared. They don't know what the future is. I mean, the the Writers Guild just eliminated packaging fees for television, which was a gigantic revenue stream for these agencies that they would take a piece of television shows in exchange for not commissioning their clients on these shows. And that's revenue that would come in for decades. I mean, CAA well, was- forget. I mean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but don't forget the whole methodology of ICM doing the financial restructuring that it did 
you know, under Chris, when, you know, Jeff Berg and the old regime was left out, was modeled. They mortgaged their back ends of the TV shows. They had had successful, hugely successful back ends on, on, you know, a litany of TV shows. And they gave away that back end. That was the only way that they really could make the credit situation work. And it's very, very hard to think about replacing that kind of revenue stream now. And I well, think, I think that's what led Chris to sell in the first place. Yeah, the ICM looked at the future and they said, oh my God, we are a largely television packaging fee agency. What are we going to do? We don't have movie stars. We don't have some of the you know different divisions that um, that CAA has and does well in. We've got you know our television business. We've got books. We've got you know some music agents. We've got some branding, but we're not. You know the future was looking kind of bleak. Well, I think I think that everyone in that business looks ahead to the future, and they don't see the the piles of money that you know, you did 20 years ago because of those changes in the industry. That said, I think that the book business at ICM, I mean, look, I, you know, full disclosure, I was a, I, I was a, I was a client for, for many years and I love the people there and they were very good to me and a very, very successful operation. It'll be interesting to see how that book business, which at ICM was a, you know, at a certain DNA and the book business at ICM, at CA, which was a different kind of approach um, you know, I think that there's some hard work, but some great benefits ahead if they can figure that out, how to make those two. And what I what I call it is sort of the barbelling of the talent business, because what we're seeing now is there are three big talent agencies, CAA, WME, UTA, that keep getting bigger. CAA has now leapfrogged WME in size as number one. Um, although the Endeavor full entity that owns it is larger. Um, UTA is buying stuff. They just bought a British agency that a lot of people thought uh, was a good move for them. Then we're seeing growth at the lowest end, um, for lack of a better word, where some of these smaller talent agencies are picking up a lot of these clients that are no longer viable. If you are an actor trying to get on a TV show, chances are you probably are not represented by one of the big three talent agencies at this point, you're probably at one of the small ones because they're not interested in you until you're bigger. And then there's this gray area in the middle of just, you know, the middle has fallen out of this business, like in many areas of business in this country. ICM was the middle of the road agency. There's not really that. I mean, there's some boutiques like Verve and couples, others that, you know, that can have high-end clients, but they're not trying to be a full service agency. Um, is this the future of this business? And frankly, the rest of Hollywood is that it's going to be feast or famine. Well, I mean, look, to a certain degree, there's always been a huge disparity between people who are successful in the business and people who are just starting out or trying to live job by job. But I think in some sort of weird way, because packaging is no longer the giant engine that it was, I think that some of these smaller agencies can say, Look, you know, we can now, if you have an idea, if you're creating a TV show, we can now bring elements into it that we couldn't before because the big agencies didn't want to do your project, you know, unless you were a client and they could package it. And so I think there's a little bit more horizontal freedom, you know, if you want. But at the big agency level, I still think there's no substitute. If you're a writer or an actor or director and you have, 
a real appetite for all the things that the business can offer. You want, I mean, you're Sarah Jessica Parker, you want clothing line, you're J, J-Lo with a perfume line, you, you want commercials, you want all sorts of things. Those, these two big agencies, UTA to a certain degree too, can offer you the kind of vertical integration. Full service. Full service that you just can't get at any other agency. And so I, I think at that point, that, that's why they've still been able to get those, those kinds of stars and those kinds of operations. This is super insidery, but I'm wondering if there's a uh, an impact on the actual content here. You know, someone who listens to this podcast who is not in the business and doesn't follow this stuff, like, does the the you know culling of the herd in the agency world and some of these voices and and creators that may not be represented by the big agencies anymore does that ultimately impact the content that gets made or will the best voices and the strongest people ultimately find good representation and opportunities in the business uh, look I, I mean i think you'd like to think that Hollywood at some point operates on a meritocracy and good ideas are going to get made and get attention. But I look at it the other way, which is, you know, you and I have been witness over the past year or so to, I think, a fundamental change in the marketplace in terms of demand. And so when you start to think about Netflix having a smaller, possibly a smaller agenda and, you know, we're not going to have what is there like, you know, a dozen streaming or whatever? We're, that's that's where the next consolidation, everything that's happened in the agency business, that's going to be happening on the content side. And so what are we saying when we we have all these people out there who are used to having, to being able to take an idea and pitch it 10 places and, you know, six months from now, there's only going to be five places or a year from now or whatever. I think that the, the, the man side is the more interesting and provocative question that um, people are faced with, not whether the agencies are going to want to represent them, but what are they going to be able to do for their clients? And even in the past couple of weeks, you've seen some purchases that the streamers have made that they're now reneging on. They're going back and saying, you know what, we're not going to do that. We said we were, but we're not. There's a there's a, a, a more limited agenda. Uh, certainly would be the case in movies and Netflix, but uh, also just TV projects. So I think that the agencies have to be aware of that as well. And the big agencies are going to be a little more skeptical about taking on other clients if they don't feel like they can sell them. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly right. I think it's already happening. I mean, you see it with people's Netflix deals not being renewed. You see it with some of the the skepticism and the new regime at Warner Brothers Discovery, looking at some of these projects and saying, wait a second, why are we spending $75 million on a DC Comics movie that's going straight to HBO? Let's let's not do that. Let's set a budget limit for HBO Max movies. Um, and I think that's going to sweep the industry over the next couple of years. We have, we have a tendency because there's so much news all the time and you guys do a great job, you know, chronicling it. But, you know, every day there's a drip and a drip and a change and a this and that. And you really think about the fact that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, well, I mean, these agencies had like a dozen or more directors who were getting first dollar gross. The studios were, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the studios were making 20, 25 movies a year. Um, You know, we have just seen the contraction and the narrowing of the agenda in in this world is so 
unbelievably pronounced that it has you know repercussions at every level of the business. We we have undergone you know uh, we've undergone a fundamental change in the way Hollywood operates in in you know just even in the last decade. So here's a fun question that someone tweeted at me. Ten years ago, my boss at CAA said soon there'll only be two agencies and they'll just be passing clients back and forth. He predicted it would be CAA and WME, but I wonder what UTA's plans are. What about the others? Acquire Paradigm and team up with WME? Like, what's the end game here? Yeah, you know, look, ultimately, though, size is not, it doesn't code you in Teflon. Even if Paradigm were to match up, let's just say with UTA for, you know, so they have more agents, which that means they're going to have to buy some of those agents and they're going to have, you know, more touch points or whatever. That doesn't safeguard you from some of the realities of the business, particularly what we've been talking about, which is the diminished demand. And so, you know, I think that in some ways UTA is obviously UTA was thinking about larger credit. They were thinking about some mergers or whatever. And if they have decided, and I have not, I'm not saying that they have, but if they've decided to just stay the way they are and not play this game of, you know, building and buying and, and, or being squalid, um, they may have figured out that that's, that's as long as they can be profitable, that's enough in this day and age. Um, Sometimes size can be a curse. I don't think, you know, I think CA will manage their way through this, but it's going to have a lot of, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage, you know, like we said a year ago when this thing was announced, you know, almost a year ago. Um, so I think, you know, it's just a question of what you want to be able to wrestle with, but there, there are no guarantees anymore. There just aren't. And there's going to be a lot of managers, a lot of people becoming managers. Uh, all right. Give me, give me one last question. One little piece of Intel. You, you're so close to this. You talk to everybody. One little prediction, piece of intel, something in this world that we should look for uh, that's going to make us all smarter. In this world, oh my God. In the agency world. Yeah, I mean, look, I I really believe that there's going to be, um, this, this is going to be a, a very, very delicate path that they're going on with this merger. I think that even though we've said, they, and it's true, they have been looking at this ICM contracts and they have gotten rid of a lot of people already that they didn't, I think that there's going to be, I, I think that this is going to be a very difficult path. That, that's not to say that they're going to pull it off, but there are, let's put it this way. There are a lot of people on both sides that I've spoken to who are not racing ahead now that the approvals, are, and this is a joyous time and oh my gosh, let's just celebrate. It is that everybody is very, very aware of the fact that it's going to be incredibly challenging. And if you go back to the Wyatt you know, endeavored William Marston. That thing was a ground war in Southeast Asia. It mm-hmm. was personal. It was difficult. There was a lot of a, a lot of people who got screwed and 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 messed up uh, by it. But you know, that's what these things are. So I, I just don't think we should be thinking about now that they've gotten approval and now that they've been able to you know send some signal to some people um, that this thing's going to be a, a smooth ride right now. You got to allow for the fact that it's very challenging. I love a good late night defection. I want some people to gather their things, take their computers in the middle of the night and announce their new company in the morning. Those are always fun. Yeah. Well, especially since it's easier if you're going to just become a manager because then, you know, you're not going to the competition. Right. There were a couple, listen, there were some big defections from CA to UTA, um, you know, several years ago. And those really connected. People noticed them. 
All right, Jim Miller, thank you very much. If you haven't read his book about CIA, it's called Powerhouse. It's fantastic. And oral history, it takes you through the history of Hollywood over the past 40 years through the lens of CIA. Um, it's a great book. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. All right, we are back with the call sheet, my daily prediction. Craig, do you have minion fever? I feel like I do because all I do is see minions marketed around Hollywood. Yeah, you're breaking out in hives. Everything is minions. <laughs> I know, it's kind of insane. This this franchise has never spoken to me personally, but my kid does love the minions. And it's interesting, I was looking at the opening grosses. There have been now been five movies featuring the minions. There's three Despicable Me's, and then there are two minion-centric spinoffs. The original Despicable Me open to $56 million. The second one, $83 million. The third one, $72 million. And the, Min the Minions movie in 2015 opened to $115 million over the four-day July 4th holiday. So that's what the new movie, Minions, The Rise of Gru, is up against. I was going to ask, is this has an animated movie ever have a spinoff be more successful than the original? Well, that's what Minions open to I know, that's higher. what I'm saying. Is, um, is this the only time that's ever worked? I mean, this would be like if The Incredibles made a movie about Dash or Toy Story made a movie just with like Slinky and Rex and it beat The Incredibles and Toy Story. Yeah, I mean, the the sequels to animated movies often do better. But what about spinoffs? DreamWorks used to do that. They did Puss in Boots. That's off right. Of, but that didn't beat uh, Shrek, Off I of bet. Shrek. And, and I don't think that beat Shrek. I don't know. the. I, I would say probably not. That's a good... That's a good thing. Uh, that's a good question. But, you know, the Despicable Me movies are popular because of the Minions, mm -hmm. I think. And from every review that I've seen, and I have read some reviews of this, sadly, because I'm going to have to go see it. <laughs> it sounds like this is basically Despicable Me 4. They just are calling it Minions. Because the main guy, Gru, who I don't want to get too into this, into the Minions <laughs> cinematic universe here. But the main guy, Gru, Steve Carell's character, is, is in this young one. Gru? He's just... He's yes, he's younger. It's called the Rise of Gru. Again, I know nothing about minions, but I find it I find it difficult to believe that you you can like form a movie around them because they don't even barely talk. They don't talk. They don't speak English. It's like gibberish. So I don't know how you like create a story and and lead characters with a bunch of babbling little yellow tic tacs. Well, it's it's eighty eight minutes. So <laughs> okay. there you go. Um, uh, but but my prediction is that I'm going to take so the tracking on this one, which is interesting. It's only about seventy five million for the four day, and I think that is low. I'm going to take the over on minions this weekend because even though Lightyear didn't do well, and there's still some questions about whether young people and their parents are comfortable going back to theaters. I think that given the 115 for the last Minions and the onslaught of marketing and the fact that my kid and all his friends want to see it, I think this movie is going to overperform the tracking and do better than 75. Yeah, I think Lightyear was just a miss. I mean, because Sonic the Hedgehog 2 did really well, and that was in theaters, right? It did, but it didn't get to that level that Minions gets to. But that's a, you know, that's a... It makes me believe parents are willing to take their kids to the theater. Yeah, I think so. For the right movie and at the right time, uh, we'll see. I mean, this is a a test because the last Minions solo outing was seven years ago, and the whole theatrical box office was in a different place then. But uh, but I at least at these at these numbers, I don't think it'll probably get to a billion. I know that Universal thinks it can, and the last Minions did get to a billion. I just don't think it's going to get there. But I think it'll do fine. And the thing about these 
these illumination movies, which is the studio that produces these uh, despicable me movies for universal. They make these movies pretty cheap. They make them in like the 80, 90 range. And if you look at a comparable movie from Disney, Lightyear costs $200 million. It's kind of insane how expensive the Disney movies are compared to the Illumination slash Universal movies. You also don't have to pay anybody to voice a minion. Yeah, there's a guy. There's like some origin story. There's a guy who comes up with the voices for him, uh, for the minions. And he was like a filmmaker you know, at Illumination, and he does them. Oh, but really? yeah, you're right. They probably computer generate them most. Although there, I'm told by my kid there is a new minion in this movie. They're introducing a new character. I, oh, I don't even know. You could tell which one's which. I thought they oh, yeah, just... yeah, yeah. Oh, are you kidding? Oh, stop. <laughs> I mean, of course you can. You got to buy the toys and you have to have all of them. That's right. Um, all right. Enough about that. I want to thank Jim Miller for coming on talking about CAA. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck. And I want to thank you. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. 